a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies, they're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. Off we go, right into the thick of the controversy. By the way, our program is brought to you in part each day at this time by Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. Strongly recommend you jump on Facebook, search them up, and you'll see for yourself why it would be worth your time to stop in and see them and thank them for being a sponsor of the program. So I was, uh, I was hearing yesterday, my wife was telling me my home state of Utah had 3,900 new cases of coronavirus yesterday. I think that's a record, by the way. And it's not surprising when you consider that testing has massively increased. And I'm, I'm not trying to be just, I'm not trying to be a contrarian. I'm not trying to be a science denier or whatever that is. When you do more tests, you're going to uncover more people with either the virus or who will show evidence of having had the virus. I mean, this just goes to figure, this just stands to reason, rather. The question I have, though, is, is the official hysteria over COVID justified? Because I'm seeing some serious, like, uh, white uh, jacket, you know, straight jacket and uh, white padded room um, breakdowns starting to take place on the part of people who are just sure this is all because there are people who are questioning the narrative. There are people who aren't doing what they're told to do, and they just do what they're told. So I'm going to share a couple of thoughts with you from uh, Tom Woods, who just has the beautiful, uncanny ability of cutting through the crap and pointing out the hypocrisy of the lockdowners. And none of this is to deny that, to, yeah, there's a real illness going around. It's to question whether or not the hysteria that we're seeing is justified. And, and i got to tell you, the more I look at the way some of these stories are reported, the more I look at the official hysteria especially, it's got me wondering, is, is somebody just trying to break us psychologically? And I don't necessarily mean just by feeding us, you know, inflated and, and hysterical figures. 3,900 people! Uh, 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 can you believe it? I'm talking more about uh, the, the way that they want to address it. Well, what we need to do is we all need to hunker down, isolate ourselves, don't even think about family members if you can. Because that's what it seems like. If we can just get everybody to, to hunker down and, and isolate themselves in, in complete loneliness and complete isolation and eventually complete financial ruin, and if they'll just obey, if they will simply obey what we tell them, everything is going to be great. Now, yes, I'm engaging in some hyperbole here, but I'm also trying to make a point. Is any of that going to stop a virus which doesn't care about political edicts, which, which isn't intimidated when you wave your credentials in its face? The answer is no. Tom Woods says, so now they want lockdowns again. 
And he specifically uh, points out to economist Tyler Cowen, who has been, I think, a remarkable source of information on a number of different issues. I think he got this one wrong, though. Tyler Cowen has been telling everyone that the hard lockdowns are just a straw man. That's a thing of the past. And the authors and signatories of the Great Barrington Declaration decrying them were wasting their time. <laughs> Would you care to walk that one back, Mr. Cowan? Uh, Tom Woods says, remind me not to cons- consult Cowan for predictions. France is reporting 500-plus deaths per day at this point, which would be like the 2,500 deaths per day in the U.S., higher than we've ever had. France is also home to the intellectuals who sniffed at the U.S. for its allegedly unscientific response. By the way, the same goes for the U.K., Italy, Spain, and elsewhere. And so Tom Woods provided a chart in this email that he sent out yesterday which includes the country the lizard people hate to mention, that being Sweden. And when you look at this chart, you know, there's a, there's a very predictable spike that took place back in April. And then Sweden, you see that, that curve decline, decline, decline. Now, the rest of the European Union saw that original spike back in April. And then they declined, and now they are steadily rising. As of November 10th, they are really getting up there in the deaths per million. In the meantime, Sweden, my goodness, they're still down there at the bottom. Their death rate is minuscule. Now remember, this is a country that never closed businesses or schools, never had a mask mandate. And Tom Wood says, by the way, you see that tiny little blip at the end of Sweden's line where it goes up a little bit and then comes back down? He says, well, a couple of weeks ago, people were pointing at that tiny little thing and screaming, well, Sweden's finally going to get what was coming to it. Okay. (laughs) They can't just be happy for Sweden and maybe a little curious to learn why it's been doing so well month after month. In fact, September 2020 was the least lethal month in the entire recorded history of Sweden. Here's the point Tom Woods is making. And I I would extrapolate this not just to Sweden or the European Union, but everywhere the COVID hysteria is taking hold. It's as if they want to make us suffer. They want to take away whatever brings us joy. They want us to feel pain. And countries like Sweden, and by the way, I think Finland was another one of those countries that did not do lockdowns, didn't do masks, and has also done extremely well. These countries spoil that party. Now, Tom Wood says, people may ask, how can you attribute that kind of motive to them? But he says, at this point, what other explanation is there? The lockdowners keep proceeding according to the same failed practices of the past. They keep ignoring the one major country that took a different path. Does that sound like someone with a truly dispassionate scientific frame of mind? He says, the rule seems to be, we don't know what we're doing. But if something brings pleasure, we should probably limit it. And if it and if something involves great inconvenience and sacrifice, well, we should impose that. Science, everyone. Meanwhile, the Republican Party, with just a few notable exceptions, has been borderline useless through the crisis. And he gives the example of Ohio's Mike DeWine. More restrictions coming from DeWine, more masking because the masks have just done a bang-up job of holding back the virus around the world. So then he has a couple of charts comparing Illinois versus Sweden. 
And it's a it's a very convincing thing. I'm going to try and post this. This is from a an email, but I'm hoping that I can get this to, to publish in the show notes, which you can find at thebrianheidshow.com. Again, you will see a similar spike taking place back in April for both Sweden and for Illinois. But they also, these charts are showing the deaths per million. And again, Sweden's numbers drop off precipitously as herd immunity kicks in. Illinois' numbers still going up. They're still rising. And he says, yet even after, Tom Wood says, even after eight months of this, you have people, people you know, your neighbors, your coworkers, even your family members, who think more of what's failed already ought to do the trick. So if you're a normal person these days, you're probably feeling kind of isolated and alone. And by the way, some are, are seizing on this announcement of the Pfizer vaccine and the uh, monoclonal antibody treatment. And saying, see, this is proof that you lockdown skeptics need to stand down. We're going to have things getting back to normal within two to four months. So until then, just shut up and let it play out. And again, Tom Woods reminds us, these are the same people who eight months ago said, we just need two weeks to flatten the curve. Now, he says, for the sake of argument, suppose these people are right. Does that mean it's time to give up pointing out facts? The standard COVID-19 mitigation narrative cannot be smashed hard enough because we need people to understand what a catastrophe it was the next time they try to impose it on us. Who knows how many years down the road? Tom Wood says, I saw someone saying that lockdowns have been vindicated by the arrival of the vaccine. What that really means is millions of deaths in the developing world from non-COVID illnesses as a direct result of lockdowns do not matter. Well, I think I would disagree. They do matter. And you probably understand that. Viruses are going to virus. And what you're seeing here is people within the state desperately want to take the credit. They're going to claim these mask mandates, the lockdowns, the ruined lives, the people believing in the science were the keys to success. But that's not true. And they're certainly discounting some of the collateral costs that uh, that are not part of that official narrative. The lives lost to despair, financial ruin, drug abuse, depression, suicide. I know you get tired of hearing me say this, but the answer in most cases is always going to be more freedom. Give people facts. Let them make the choices for themselves. You can't unfree yourself out of this mess, but by gosh, they're sure going to try This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. By the way, uh, today is Friday the 13th. Yes, a Friday the 13th in 2020. I guess if you're into living dangerously, you're probably feeling pretty good right about now. Going to be interesting to see uh, how today plays out. So, I posed the question in the last segment, is someone trying to break us psychologically? And COVID-19, I think, is, is one of the tools that we're being, uh, that's being used to help break us psychologically. I think there's more, too. But to really illustrate why this uh, may be the case... 
I want to pose a question to you. This is actually from Dr. Joseph Mercola. Found this article on lewrockwell.com earlier this morning. And the question he asks is, how would you prefer to spend your last holiday season? Now, don't read anything too, you know, ominous into that, but seriously ask yourself that question. If this were my last holiday season, how would I prefer to spend it? See, that's the kind of question that requires taking a couple of steps back in order to see the bigger picture. This is something I think every one of us could benefit from. Dr. Mercola says, depending on where you live, COVID-19 rules could be putting a damper on holiday festivities this year. California is probably one of the most notable examples, although I think New York is now following suit. They recently released a long list of killjoy rules for the holidays. You ready for some of these? California's rules include limiting get-togethers to a maximum of three households, including hosts and guests. Dinner must be served outdoors. They have to limit the gathering to two hours or less. Attendees may go inside for bathroom breaks, but only if the restrooms are frequently sanitized. Face coverings must be worn at all times and can only be removed briefly to eat or drink or in the case of emergency medical needs like using an inhaler or taking medication or feeling lightheaded. Non-household members must be spaced at least six feet apart in all directions. Singing, chanting, shouting, physical exertion, and the use of wind instruments are strongly discouraged. Food and drinks should be served in disposable containers and self-serve communal containers or shared utensils are not permitted. Hand-washing or hand-sanitizing facilities must be available and all attendees should use them frequently. Other than that, have a happy Thanksgiving. Now, Dr. Joseph Mercola asks, at what price? Safety. Should government be permitted to micromanage how and with whom you spend your holidays? As noted by AJK in a recent Medium article, if safety requires us to indefinitely forfeit the most valuable parts of our lives, what exactly are we trying to save? Now, that's a question well worth asking. Just how great a price are you willing to pay for the illusion of safety? SARS-CoV-2 has a survival rate of 99.99% for those under the age of 40. Even people over the age of 60 who aren't residents of nursing homes have a survival rate of 98.29%. Data also show the overall cause mortality has remained steady during 2020 and doesn't veer from the norm. In other words, COVID-19 has not killed off more of the population than would have died in any given year anyway. Yet residents in many areas are now told in great detail how they can and cannot celebrate their holidays. Is it worth it? By the way, I've become a huge fan of AJK and follow her on Twitter. And if you are still on Twitter, maybe that's something you should consider as well. Kay writes, this will be the final Thanksgiving for 2.8 million. That's the the annual all-cause death toll of our fellow Americans. What this means is it could be my last or yours. That likelihood is significantly higher for elderly loved ones, too many of whom will not have seen or hugged their family in nine months. She says the hard truth is that we do not know who will be around for Thanksgiving next November. What we do have is right now, this moment, today. We aren't promised one second more. 
We've already foregone countless once-in-a-lifetime events to mitigate a newly minted definition of risk, which only takes one variable into account, and have neglected to acknowledge that many of our seniors, the most vulnerable among us, don't even want that kind of safety because it costs precious moments with their families. AJK says there's only one unsafe version of Thanksgiving for me, and that's failing to be present with my family, allowing weaponized shame and performative restrictions to keep us apart. God forbid one of us isn't sitting at that table next year. I can't imagine grappling with that regret. And if one or all of us get COVID, so be it. Now, I'm going to pause here for a moment and ask you, does that sound irresponsible? Is that just flouting convention for the sake of I'll do whatever I want? Because in my mind, I think she's, she's actually voicing a very rational approach. And I really feel bad for the people who will carry regrets with them for the rest of their life because they allowed their fear, and, and, and I think it's artificially generated fear of a virus, to cause them to junk all of the good things in their life. How does AJK put it again? If safety requires us to indefinitely forfeit the most valuable parts of our life, what exactly are we trying to save? Now, Dr. Mercola says, as reported by Daily News, October 19th of 2020, forced isolation due to COVID-19 concerns are hurting seniors who struggle with loneliness and depression at ever greater numbers. The article features the story of Lesret, let me see if I get her name right, Lesret Hutchinson, a 64-year-old retiree in the West Bronx, who in recent days is starting to find herself heading to bed as early as 5 p.m., exhausted from a host of mounting frustrations, such as technological hurdles that came with virtual doctor visits and navigating the Social Security website. She's also frustrated from being alone in a one-bedroom apartment for the better part of seven months. She's grown sick and tired of talking to friends on the phone and feels demotivated to do much of anything, which is a hallmark sign of depression. According to a report by the AARP and United Health Foundation, social distancing measures have led to an epidemic of loneliness. And this, too, has significant health and emotional risks. As noted in the report, defined as having few social relationships or infrequent social contact with others, social isolation is a public health crisis. Studies have found that social isolation can be worse for one's health than obesity, and the health risks of prolonged isolation are equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. For adults who've experienced social isolation during the current pandemic, half report this social isolation has caused them to lack motivation, and slightly more than 4 in 10, say that it has made them feel more anxious than usual. Slightly more than a third report that it's made them feel depressed. And yet only 11% of adults turn to a medical professional when feeling down or sad. And almost a third of adults, 50-plus, reported they didn't look to anyone for support during the pandemic. Among the 50-plus, almost a third of them, women, report going as long as one to three months not interacting with others outside their home or workplace during the pandemic. And they're more likely to experience negative emotions than their male counterparts. Since the COVID-19 pandemic began, women, 50-plus, are more than twice as likely to report feeling overwhelmed. 
and more women than men, 50-plus, report feeling anxious and stressed. Along with women 50-plus, the impact to low-income older adults, defined as those who have a household income of less than 40000 and who are also 50 years of age or older, has also been c- greater compared to older adults with high incomes, defined as those who have a household income of 75000 plus and who are 50 years or older. Now, there's more to this. We're going to come back to it in a few moments. But again, how would you prefer to spend your last holiday season? That's not a morbid question, which we should all shy away from. That's a clarifying question that every one of us should summon the courage to ask and then honestly answer. Would you be willing to embrace these restrictions if you knew this was the last chance you would have to spend with family and friends? And if the answer is no, what would you change? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, you can check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. In particular, if you want to follow up on some of the articles I've been sharing here, you're looking for the show notes for November 13th. Yes, Friday the 13th of 2020. Sorry, it's, it's, it's an ominous year. I'm just trying to play on that uh, ominous feel. I've been sharing this uh, article with Dr. Joseph Mercola. How would you prefer to spend your last holiday season? And I think this, more than anything, helps to make the case that I'm not so sure that, uh, that the pandemic, real as it may be, is nearly the threat that we are being told that it is. And I don't think the restrictions that are being placed on us by those who purport to be saving us from ourselves, I don't think those things are, are necessarily justified either. Because when you ask yourself, hey, am I willing to live my life indefinitely without human connection? Most of us, I think, if we're being honest with ourselves, would say, that's not much of a life. That's just, that's an existence. You might as well be sitting in a prison cell. And I think mentally, that's exactly what's happening here. Sorry if that sounds dramatic, but I feel like somebody is trying to construct a psychological prison cell for us. Or as I mentioned earlier in, in the, the episode here, <clears throat> it's about breaking us psychologically. Dr. Mercola says, I wouldn't be surprised if many people, regardless of their age, would choose companionship over safety from a virus. And he says, for argument's sake, ponder this question. Which would you choose? Live alone, all alone, on an island for the rest of your life, knowing there's no one around to infect you with COVID-19, or live surrounded by friends and family, knowing you're taking your chances every time you get near one another. He says, I know what I choose. As noted in the AARP's report, it's connections, companionship, and a sense of belonging that we need as humans. Social connection is even more impactful at earlier ages, with poor social connections being strongly associated with poor health and depression among youth. So before you cancel your holiday plans with aging parents and grandparents this season, maybe ask, is that what they really want? And remember, this may be their last Thanksgiving or their last Christmas. How do you want to spend that time and what memories do you want to make? 
Dr. Mercolis is handing out edicts, demanding we eliminate all the things that make life worth living in order to prevent the spread of a survivable virus that most people don't even know they have until they get tested, is unconscionable and inhuman. But so is following these kinds of unconstitutional government edicts. He says, I have to say I'm surprised at the sheer number of people willing to surrender their constitutional rights and liberties in return for absolutely nothing. None of the measures, six-foot social distancing, mask-wearing, self-isolation, and select business shutdowns actually guarantee anyone's safety. All we need is one infected person left in the world, and safety for all remains out of touch. Even before the COVID-19 pandemic, loneliness had reached epidemic levels. Did you know this? In 2018, 54% of American adults age 18 and older reported feeling lonely. By January 2020, it was 61%. Nine months into the pandemic, we're now at 66%. And by the way, that loneliness isn't just relegated to the elderly. According to the AARP report, people between the ages of 18 and 34 actually report the highest rates of isolation. In the 18 to 34 age group, 75% report feeling socially isolated, compared to 61% of those over age 50. By the way, he's not just pulling these numbers out of his ear. As you'll see if you check out the article in the show notes, he has the charts and graphs and data to back this up. Among those aged 18 to 34, 19% say they have gone as long as two or three months without interacting with another person compared to 16% among those over the age of 35. 10% of 35 to 49-year-olds, 9% of 18 to 34-year-olds, and 7% of those over 50 say they have not interacted with anyone outside their household or workplace since the pandemic began. And the impact of loneliness and social isolation will undoubtedly be found to be far greater than the death toll of COVID-19 by the time everything is tabulated. For instance, according to a 2019 study by the American Cancer Society that looked at data from 580,182 Americans, social isolation increases mortality from every cause. In other words, social isolation is deadly. Commenting on her team's findings, public health researcher Cassandra Alcaraz told the American Psychological Association, our research shows that the magnitude of risk presented by social isolation is very similar in magnitude to that of obesity, smoking, lack of access to care, and physical inactivity. While it's been referred to as self-isolation and sold as staying safe at home, the lockdowns can can rightfully be likened to house arrest, especially in areas where people have been allowed outdoors for maybe an hour or two a day. Dr. Mercola says this, that this kind of self-isolation can be harmful to mental health should come as no surprise, considering psychologists have long known the effects solitary confinement has on prisoners. Even among prisoners, solitary, solitary confinement is the worst and most extreme punishment there is. As reported by Engadget, quote, take Robert King, for example, who spent 29 years in solitary confinement. King spoke at a 2018 neuroscience conference about his experience and how it impacted his cognitive function. 
He described that upon his release from prison, he had severe difficulty recognizing faces and had to restrain, retrain himself, rather, to understand what faces even were and how they worked. He also had difficulty navigating even simple routes through, city, through a city without assistance. Turns out when your universe is a six-foot-by-nine-foot room for nearly three decades, there's not much need to keep your navigation skills sharp or even much impetus to keep a firm grasp of reality. For some prisoners, solitary confinement precipitates a descent into madness. That's, a, that's according to Dr. Craig Haney, a professor of psychology at the University of Southern Calif- of California, rather, Santa Cruz. That's what he testified to the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on the Constitution, Civil Rights, and Human Rights back in 2012. He concluded panic, or prisoners rather, may experience crushing bouts of anxiety, paranoia, hallucinations, and panic attacks. The conditions of confinement are far too severe to serve any kind of penological purpose. That was his conclusion. Now, the reason this happens is because a prolonged social isolation physically changes the shape and function of your brain. The hippocampus, the region responsible for learning and memory, not only shrinks in size in response to long-term isolation, but it also loses its plasticity and eventually can shut down altogether. And at the same time, the amygdala, which regulates your fear and anxiety response, goes into overdrive. And the longer the confinement lasts, the more pronounced these changes become, even after the inmate's eventual release. So what's the takeaway here? Dr. Mercola says, look, don't let a virus steal your life. And this is some great common sense here. Risk is an an inevitable part of life, and for all of human history, mankind has accepted this. Now, all of a sudden, we're told, well, we have to give up life in order to prevent the spread of a virus that poses no risk to the vast majority of people. If safety requires us to indefinitely forfeit the most valuable parts of our lives, what exactly are we trying to save? Again, a terrific quote from AJK. Is it worth it? Just how much are you willing to give up for this false sense of security? Are you willing to give up your family? Your friends? For how long? Are you willing to live in solitary confinement for the rest of your days? Dr. Mercola says, because believe me, the threat of infectious disease will never cease. He says, I believe the real threat right now is what we're doing to sabotage the mental, emotional, and physical health of children, of people rather, especially our children, whose development is dependent on social interactions, physical contact, and facial expressions. He says, between mask wearing and social distancing, I fear the impact on children in particular may be long-term, if not permanent. And he says, it's clearly taking a cruel toll on the elderly as well, who are nearing the end of their lives anyway. If you knew your days were numbered, how would you want to spend them? Would your main concern be to prevent an infection that might speed up the inevitable? Or would you want to spend whatever time you have left surrounded by those you love? These are significant questions that will guide your choices and thus the course of your life. And he says they're more pressing now than ever. So choose wisely this holiday season because whatever you choose, you have to live with your choices. I don't know if that hits you as hard as it hits me, but that's a pretty powerful piece of commentary. Again, check it out at the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. If you like it, 
Share it with a friend. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm going to move on now. I know that uh, there is a lot of concern, especially as... uh, we watched the uh, 2020 election passion play uh, continue to play out before us. One of the big concerns that dogs those who are following this closely is whether a change in leadership in the White House is going to portend stricter gun control. Okay, I've had some of those concerns myself as far as, yeah, I wonder what they'll try to get away with. Thomas L. Knapp has a very reassuring take on this subject. In fact, he explains why he's not even worried about the uh, Biden-Harris gun control talk. And I think he makes a certain amount of sense here. He says, a few weeks before the 2020 election, I visited a local gun shop. It was a madhouse. Weapons flew off the shelves as fast as customers could get their wallets out. Ammunition was in short supply, too. Why? Well, on the front door, a flyer warned that if elected, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris would act quickly to push gun control legislation through Congress. Now, Thomas Knapp points out panic buying before a big election, just in case, is the norm. That means booming business for gun dealers, but there's just not much reason for gun owners or would-be gun owners to worry. He says other than some ineffectual tinkering around the edges for propaganda purposes, gun control just ain't going to happen in America. Now, here's his explanation. He says it's not because the right to self-defense and the corollary right to possess the means of self-defense is an unalienable and non-negotiable human, non-negotiable human right, even though it is. Nor is it because the U.S. Constitution clearly and unambiguously forbids government infringement on the right to keep and bear arms, though it does. He says, while I love the philosophical and constitutional arguments on the subject, it's the facts on the ground that really settle the question. And here are some numbers to back up what he's saying. As of 2018, the Global Small Arms Survey estimated the number of firearms in civilian hands in the U.S. at 393 million. If evenly distributed, that'd be about 1.2 guns for every man, woman, and child in the country. Now, they're not evenly distributed, of course. Per the Pew Research Center, only about 30% of Americans own a gun. Call it 110 million. But here's how any real public discussion of gun control in America is going to go. You ready for this? Government, give us your guns. Gun owners, no. Government, no, really, give us your guns. We passed a law. Gun owners, come try to take them and see what happens. Government, well, when you put it that way... You see his point? More than 100 million Americans own nearly 400 million guns. And this is the important part. They have no intention of surrendering those guns. Furthermore, Americans can build relatively sophisticated weapons with relatively inexpensive machine tools and or 3D printers. And very basic firearms with items found in most homes. So Joe Biden and Kamala Harris don't have to like those facts But they're facts, whether Joe Biden and Kamala Harris like them or not. And if they decide to get pushy about it, 
Thomas Knapp reminds us as few as 1% of those gun owners could, and almost certainly would, make the Civil War look like a day at the children's petting zoo. So he says, yes, politicians will make impassioned speeches to roust votes and campaign donations out of the ignorant and fearful. They might even get some token legislation passed for gun owners to ignore and for politicians to ignore gun owners ignoring. But he says they know any attempt to impose real gun control would be political and possibly literal suicide. I don't know why. Maybe maybe I'm wrong to, to take the kind of comfort that I find in that, but I believe him, and I think he's right. You know, if, if they hadn't seen, <clears throat> what was it, 15 million firearms find new homes this year alone, if firearms ownership had been dwindling and, you know, it was just oh, it was a few fuds out there that, that are maybe collecting guns, but uh, nobody really cares about it anymore, that would be one thing. But you've got an awful lot of people who've said, no, I've seen how the state is incapable of protecting me and mine in times of crisis. And so people have taken that responsibility for themselves. And by the way, it's not just conservatives. It's people all over the political spectrum. I think that's a good thing. You know, your mileage may vary. All right, one final note here. Who to believe, what to believe. I'm going to share this article. I'll actually give you a couple excerpts, but you'll have to go to the website, uh, thebrianhydeshow.com, look at today's show notes for November 13th, and read this excellent essay from Robert E. Wright. I know that right now the ability to sort fact from narrative is becoming one of our most essential survival skills. And Robert Wright has a terrific take on a lot of the different issues and topics that are going on right now that uh, may have you a, a little bit concerned. He says, I'm more than a little chagrined to have to discuss this matter in 2020, no less. But here we are, as a society, running around like frightened children, believing all sorts of claims that we shouldn't, and disbelieving all sorts of claims that we should at least consider more carefully. What should a rational adult believe or disbelieve? He says, it's an unfruitful question because it's too broad. But if pressed to answer it, he says, I would respond very little either way. What he means is we know astonishingly little that is worth knowing, especially of the, the positive variety. Look at this example he gives. He says, if asked, most Americans know the Declaration of Independence was signed on July 4th, 1776. They can state that from memory or at least choose it from a list, meaning they know it was not signed on, say, Christmas Day, 1792, or April Fool's Day, 1020. But it turns out they are wrong as that document was actually signed on August 2nd, 1776. In fact, Americans didn't even declare independence on July 4th, but rather did so two days earlier. The nation's birthday celebration takes place on the anniversary of congressional approval of the famous final, I'm sorry, the famous final text of the Declaration. But we get this wrong because of confusion over the verb and frankly because it doesn't matter to how we live our lives today independent of Great Britain, but still not independent of authoritarian influences. Yes, authoritarian. We bow way much to the authority of authors, especially those who purport to be scientists or elite journalists or academics. He says too many Americans believe X, some claim about policy or with clear policy implications. For some reason, it sounds right or woke or PC or whatever. 
They then search out authorities who argue X and block out, vilify, or misconstrue anyone who exerts something other than X. That's called confirmation bias, by the way. They drown those who support X in superlatives while implying or sometimes screaming that those who argue anything but X must be dumb, paid shills, or outright evil. Robert Wright says the fact is 99.9% of the population can form no more than a mere opinion about, about most X's of real policy import. Some don't have the educational background to understand X, while others simply don't have time to look into the matter deeply. In other words, while they can opine about X, their views should have no more weight than if they asserted that Y is the best color. It doesn't matter if 99% of the population agrees there is no objective basis for the claim, which is why we call it an opinion. He says the ability to discern real experts from those claiming expert status is difficult to develop. But the key is to understand precisely what is under discussion. So if the issue is the transmission of a pathogen, then an epidemiologist or allied specialist might be an expert. If the issue is how policymakers should respond to a pathogen, then lots of other types of specialists may be experts too, including economists who specialize in remembering to look for unseen costs. The more complex or wicked the policy problem, he says, the more experts will disagree on the proper policy path and the less that non-experts should jump on the bandwagon of one type, specialist, or another, as they most likely see the world through too narrow of a view, through a pinhole. And that's especially the case when that specialist comes from one of the more arrogant specialties like clinical practice or epidemiology. The former convince themselves that they save people and the latter uses a lot of math which makes it seem more precise or scientific than it really is. Bottom line is, he urges us to be very careful about how we give our allegiance and our belief. And he says, yes, I try to practice what I preach. I'm not screaming that Biden or Trump won the election because I don't know for sure either way. He says, I can tell you some states appear to have engaged in unconstitutional practices, by allowing governors or judges to make election decisions instead of state legislatures, as outlined in Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1 of the U.S. Constitution. But, as he points out here, without accurate sources of information, all he can do is prepare for the riots that may be coming and wait for the Supreme Court to decide the matter. He covers a lot of territory in this article, but I think there's some great advice here. And part of it is just... Start with the recognition that we can't know everything. Most of it comes to us from sources where other people are telling us stuff. So relax, Francis, and enjoy the ride. This is The Brian Hyde Show.